Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity for me personally to teach. Um, I appreciate very much the opportunity to be able to help others hopefully understand your word and the way you work um, in a better way. I pray that um, to that end, this class would be profitable as I study and then for those who, um, who are here, that we would all as a team be able to come together and be interested in what you have to say and um, be able to think deeply about what you are doing in our lives so that we can better understand and then ultimately better share what you have done in us to others. Help us to work hard tonight to think, to ask questions, to not be nervous to answer questions, and uh, to really discover um, the true meaning of what biblical conversion is. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, by way of hopefully brief introduction, my name's Troy. I am horrible with remembering people's names. So... I've seen most of you on a week-in, week-out basis since I've started coming to CBC, and I don't know who you, I don't know your names. I know your faces, and I would recognize you at Chili's, but I don't know your name. So, um, my hope is that in the next couple of weeks, we can I can know your name. So my my uh, request to you is. Um, I'm going to ask, my hope, my goal is, is to ask you a lot of questions and to kind of have more of a discussion format where you are going to be involved. Now, fair game, I used to be a teacher of junior hires. They're not the most uh, talkative bunch when it comes to giving good answers. So my tendency is when there's silence is to not let silence linger long, and I just pick people out and ask them to answer. So, I'm just giving you fair warning that that's my natural bent. I hope not to scare you, but that's just kind of the way I typically have rolled and have gotten used to it. Um, So, when you answer a question, if you could just, for the first week or two, say your name so I can get to know who you are, then maybe I can call on your name or I might ask your name again, but that would be really helpful to me. So, um, my wife just walked in. Her name's Mallory. she and I and our two children, Caden and Hadley, they're the cutest here. So if you don't know who they are, you do by seeing that they're the cutest. Um, we came to CBC, and my dad is here. He's sitting in the back, um, and he would probably agree. So we came to CBC at the very tail end of 2013. I think our first Sunday was just after Christmas, maybe. So we've been here almost two years now. Um, this is my first time I'm stepping into where Hal was um, teaching in the Discovery this, the Discovery series. So this is a four-semester series, um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Just very quickly, by means of education, I grew up here in Downriver, so I'm a Downriver boy. I grew up in Allen Park. I went to inner city for school, uh, for high school, junior or elementary all the way up. And then uh, I ended up going to Clearwater, which is now defunct, but uh, Clearwater Christian College, as my dad once said when I was walking in a friend's wedding, he said he plays golf and goes to college on the side, um, which was pretty pretty accurate. Um, then I came back and taught five years at Inner City in their high school. I taught junior high science and phys ed, coached, and then I concurrently was uh, working in the junior high youth group there. Fell in love with junior high youth ministry and just I thought teaching cellular mitosis and meiosis or teaching God's word I like this better. And so a friend of mine encouraged me to go to seminary. I went to seminary five very interesting years of my life and graduated. Mallory and I got married in that time. We had Caden then we moved out to Milwaukee for two years, and I helped a friend out there who's a senior pastor of a small Baptist church. They needed some help on the administrative pastoral front, and that's kind of where my giftedness is. And so I went out there, and we helped. And when the two years was up, we came back, didn't know where we were going to go. And I interviewed at a couple places for pastoral ministry opportunities and didn't feel like any of those were right fits. And 
Ken called up and said, hey, what do you think about coming back to the area and coming to CBC? And okay. So here we are. And a year and a half later or so, we're sitting here. So um, confession, this is the first time, my first time through the Discovery Series, both as a teacher and as a student. So I've never taken the Discovery Series. Um, so this will be a little bit of an uh, introduction for all of us. All right, so I've given you two handouts. You can set the big sheet aside because that's going to just be for you to take notes as we go. And really the only reason I gave that to you is there's a little chart on the bottom. Since I don't have a whiteboard other than that little rinky-dink thing, I decided that I was going to just give you the chart and you can fill it in when we get there, if we get there tonight um, in our discussion. But the half sheet that's laminated, you're probably thinking I'm nuts, but... I'm the type of person that has to see the forest um, from the trees. So I can, I, I oftentimes get in the thick of things and I can lose my way and I, I forget, well, what in the world am I even doing here? Why am I even discussing conversion? Or why are we talking about the core truths of the gospel in the middle of all this stuff? And so what I decided to do, at least if not for your sake, for my own, is to provide a little description in, in an outline so you could see, okay, what are we doing in this discovery series and where it is what we're talking about this week fitting into the grand scheme of it all. So we're just going to kind of walk through this. I laminate it so you can just tuck it in your Bible or keep it in your notebook. So if you get lost one day, you can at least stare at this and say, oh yeah, this is what we're talking about overall. So the description and the goal, this is in your book, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but in a nutshell, it's to take you from A to Z in your spiritual walk, in your discipleship, so that by the end of this series, this four-semester series, you will have a biblical worldview. That's the goal. We'll see at the end of four, uh, two years if that's the case. But that's the agenda, is that you think through whatever you encounter in life, you're able to at least have the tools necessary to think through things biblically. And that you would have that bent to think through things biblically. So you're kind of awesome. All right, cool. Thank you. So there's four semesters. Discovering the Christian life. That's what we're in right now. There's discovering intimacy with God. That's basically the growth section. How do we grow in our relationship with God? Discovering your role in God's family. Where's your place in this assembly? How do you fit in God's family, the church? And then the last is discovering how to share your faith. It's a discussion on evangelism. So if you flip it over, then we'll, then we'll flip it back in a second. So this is an outline of this semester, so you know where we're at. Did you get one, Dave? Okay. We got the wrong, I got the wrong book. You got the wrong book? Yeah, that's definitely not is the right one? one. It's the Christian, Christian life. life, yeah. So this is where we're at, is discovering the Christian life, not sharing your faith. And there's 12 lessons. We're obviously going to be covering the very first one, the conversion experience tonight. But they have these neatly divided into three sections of four lessons. The first is going to be understanding the gospel. The second is how do we grow in this gospel grace. And the last section is, so how do we live this gospel in a fallen world? So the next four weeks, we're going to discuss the gospel. This week, we're going to look at conversion, our initial experience with the gospel. The next week, we're going to look at the core truths. In, in other words, what is essential to the message that we call the gospel? So you can set this one aside. You can open your books, if you would. And tonight is going to be slightly different than normal. I think. Everybody has the wrong book. No, not everybody. Some of them have the right one. Okay. If you don't have this, this is what you need. Oh, that's the really old one then that they have. So we do have Wait a second. This is the right book stuff. Yeah. No, mine was as well. That's hers. They just have the old version. Sorry. This is... They, they need to have the one that's called Discovering the Christian Life. Yes. Yeah. That is just the new version, and that's the old one. But, but I all the content is there. Yeah, that's why I didn't have how to share your faith. It's a prettier picture on the new one. Okay, keep that one. Okay. 
All right, so the design of this class and the design of this workbook, I hate to say this for all you working people or retired people that work, is that you're supposed to do the majority of this at home on your own. So in theory, you're going to come to class every week having done everything, and I'm going to teach the class with that assumption in mind. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't participate. I'm still going to ask you questions, and I'm still going to expect you to answer even if you haven't done your work. Um, but it would definitely help you if you came prepared. But I'm going to teach the class with the assumption that you've done the work. I hope that you'll find that the discussion that we have, you should still be able to participate even if we don't, if you haven't done it. Uh, I'm not going to be grading it. <laughs> I'm not taking your work home. Uh, so you don't have anything to worry on that side. So this week is going to be different in that I'm going to kind of just very quickly walk through the chapter and and show you what you're going to need to be doing. I'm not going to do it for you tonight. You can do that at home this week if you want, but I'm going to try to quickly move to the discussion part. But here it is on page 1.1, I believe, is the conversion experience. They overview it. They give you some goals and objectives of the lesson. And the very last one is going to be the main objective of our discussion tonight, and that is to discover the true meaning of conversion. Then they go to a section called Grasping the Issue. They have these things called sound bites. Sound bites, as you'll note, are these little statements or quotations from somewhere. Um, sometimes they're spot on, sometimes they're way off, sometimes they're somewhere in between. And the purpose is not to be teaching you the exact correct thing there, it's to get you thinking, um, to get you to wonder, is that on or is that off, is that right, is that wrong? And, and that's the goal of grasping the issue. So at the end of that section, they're wanting you to kind of write out in your own words, what in the world are we trying to get after in this in this lesson? So that's where it says, what is the central question or issue before us? That's all that you're going to be doing that all on your own. Then the then the second or the third step of the discovery series is studying the scriptures. They're going to give you a, a, a section of scripture, at least one, where you're going to have to read and interact with. I would highly recommend that you don't just consult that one text. Now, if you have... If you don't have time, just at least do that. But if you have time throughout the week, think about other texts that might impact whatever we're discussing. Um, just if you have time. Then the next section is going to be consult other sources. This week, thankfully, you don't have any other sources to consult. But they will actually provide sources to consult right here within the chapter. If you look real quick, just at the next chapter... Just, to, just so you know what, what's coming up, if you look at uh, page 2.5, there's a section from a book called The Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll. On, it's called The Free Gift, and there's a handful of pages. There's another resource just after that um, by Gene Getz, I believe, called Understanding God's Grace. And so they give you the sources. However, I would strongly recommend that you consult other sources as well. Let me give you at least one source that I find particularly helpful that I would um, suggest you spend your money on. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. If you don't have it, I suggest you get it. I wouldn't endorse Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M. Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M. U-D-E-M. And his book is just called Systematic Theology. It's big, so don't be scared by its size. But of all the systematic theologies that I've ever looked at in seminary, before and after, that is the most accessible for the average Joe. Um, And for me, someone who doesn't love reading very much, it's puts it in nice small sections so maybe there's only a couple paragraphs you have to read at a time so you're not like intimidated by it. Um, there are some theological oddities that you have to be careful of as in, the, as in every systematic but that is one resource I'd highly recommend 
that you purchase. So then after you've done all this stuff, this preparatory work, you're going to then form a response. They'll ask you some questions. You respond to these questions. And then this is where we get in the fifth step to what we're going to be doing primarily in this class, and that's discussing the issue. So you you can answer the question that they give, but we're going to spend our time, Lord willing, discussing the issue. I will have already come with my answers, and I'm going to have my own questions that probably aren't going to be in this book. But I'm going to be taking this and, Lord willing, just kind of jumping off, and we'll dive in together um, into a topic. So tonight's topic is conversion. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. If you don't, it's okay. But here we go. If you have your, your full sheet of paper... The goal for tonight's discussion is this, to discover the true meaning of conversion. The true meaning of conversion. So here's my first question, what is it? If you were asked, what is conversion, how would you respond? Or how would you define that that term? Maybe turning completely from where you used to be to something different. Okay, turning from where you used to be to somewhere different. Something better. Okay, but you didn't give me your name. Chris. Chris. Name? Steph. All right. Or Steph. Steph or Steph. The name. That point in time when you reach the point well when you reach the realization that um, you need to turn to the Lord and accept the provision okay. through Christ Jesus and repent from the sinful life. Okay. Anyone else? Changing from one system to another. Okay. More, a more generic term. Okay. To me, it's the true meaning of um, learning about God, getting closer to God. Okay. So I believe it was Stephanie that said point in time, right? So there's a point in time. Did you say there was basically a turning okay so there's a point in time where you're turning from a former thing to a new thing so let's let's take that and make it biblical not accusing you of being unbiblical but let's make it explicitly christian biblical conversion how would we define it what okay death to light or life did you life Dark to light, death to life. The acceptance of Jesus as your Savior. Okay. That that assumes what, though? If you're accepting Jesus as your Savior, what, what does that assume? It assumes that you didn't before. assumes that Jesus is, right. is the way to God, right. the way to heaven. So let me offer you my definition I'm not suggesting it's good, but this is just the one that I came up with that I was hoping might be helpful to you. I'll try to spell it out. Conversion is a change of heart. And I have dot, dot, dot. It's an ellipsis. Abandoning myself and my sin and embracing God and his grace. So I'll repeat that numerous times. Conversion is a change of heart. Abandoning myself and my sin and embracing God and his grace. Conversion is a change of heart. So you guys all nailed that that part. It's a change. It's a change of heart. Abandoning myself and my sin and embracing God and his grace. I think that is a, a fair definition of what biblical conversion is. The basic idea behind that term 
you've all said it as well. Change, right? What about the change? Where's the change? It's a change from one thing to another. From abandoning myself and my sin to embracing God and His grace. So some of you might be questioning, well, why do I need to abandon? Because I, I said specifically abandoning myself and my sin. Why, why would I say something that potentially aggressive or particular? Why not just say sin? Well, let me give you one text that came to my mind when I, when I wrote that definition. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, And he died, that is Jesus Christ, died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, as Christians, when we are converted, we are abandoning the old and embracing the new. Part of that old, we're not like ceasing to be, I'm not ceasing to be Troy Fisher when I was converted. I'm still Troy Fisher. That, the way God made me, but I'm embracing my, or I'm abandoning myself in the sense that I'm abandoning myself as being king of my life, and I embrace and embracing God and His grace because He is the king of my life. So, what are some uh, wrong-headed explanations that you've heard of conversion? Maybe you've been talking to someone and they're sharing the gospel or they're they're sharing you about about their conversion experience and you're kind of kindly sitting there scratching your head thinking i hope i don't have a really wacky face on right now because so what are some of the things that you've heard explanations about conversion that are are faulty dad that's my dad you know his name's ken for everybody else uh a lot of people express it as a feeling or uh, express it emotionally instead of uh, something that is factual, so to speak. More of a more of a feeling oriented thing, not a not a heart or a mind. And it certainly would include what well, does feeling, but it's but not it's exclusively, exclusively feeling. Sally. Sally? Had to believe in something. So why not? You had to believe in something. So why not the gospel? Okay. Just kind of like the fuzzy faith. Like, well, I had faith. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Wanda's your hand up? Yeah. <laughs> um, I've had people say, you know what? I heard God talking to me. He told me that, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Really, what's his voice sound like? <laughs> Stuff? Um, growing up Catholic, it was, it was a big discussion that going through the um, ritual of infant baptism um, guaranteed that the person was a child of God. So I don't know if that's what you're after, but that's something that that is is not is kind of not out. It's out there. Sure. That's something we encounter all the time. Anybody else? I think some people think this may be built from a Christian home mm-hmm. that they're under the They do. I just I think that maybe they think that they're Christians and then they grow up in those teen years and young twenties come and I think it's false. I think they just assume they work. That's So if if conversion is a change of heart abandoning myself and my sin and embracing God and His grace. And the core idea is change or convert, conversion, changing from one thing to the other. My question then is, is what are the core components of conversion? Let me try to um, 
maybe phrase that in a little bit easier way. While the Bible doesn't use the actual term conversion, what words do you recall Jesus or Paul, for instance, using when they are calling someone to convert? Because we hear Jesus and Paul calling people to convert all the time, right? To abandon them, them, their, their own old former way of life and to embrace Christ. What are some of the words, theologically even, that we would use to describe that? Name? John. John? <laughs> I'm going to be a stickler on that because I don't want to miss anybody. All right, John. Put off. Okay. Put off the old. Like Ephesians 4, Colossians. Born again. Okay, born again. Nicodemus, John 3. Okay, repent. Jesus says, John the Baptist first, in Matthew 3, says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus says, just a chapter later, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Peter, Pentecost sermon, right? The very end. The response after seeing who this Jesus is, who's both... Israel's Lord and Christ and that this gospel is expanded to the Gentiles he says what are we supposed to do and, they, and he says repent so repentance would be one side anything else this side of the room <laughs> women who are being very quiet Sally redemption. okay redemption is a good word what what aspect of the gospel does re- redemption uh, touch on, or how would you define redemption? What? Yeah, sure. Yes. Well, you offered it. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a the idea of you're going to redeem something. Like my dad and I, I, I just spent way too much money on golf clubs, and they gave me a coupon to go play at treetops and so my dad and I are going to go up on Monday and play at treetops and I'm going to redeem that coupon so I'm going to essentially literally in this case buy something back or get something right there's a transaction that's going on so there's an idea of redemption but we have repentance so what is repentance I mean quickly if we're going to say that repentance is one of the core components of conversion and conversion defined as a change of heart abandoning self and sin embracing God and his grace which side of that definition would the repentance fall on the abandoning self and sin or the embracing of God and his grace name name Pete and you're saying abandoning. abandoning self and sin. So that's the repentance side. So what do you think would equate to the embracing God and his grace side? And this is probably a little bit more tricky because it's not as clearly spelled out. So think think with me um, some of the most popular like gospel call verses. Like John 3.16 or Acts 16.31. Blank on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What is it? Believe. Believe. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever believes. So there's the two there's two main components, at least theologically speaking, of conversion. That change. There's repentance, that would equate to the change of heart, abandoning myself and my sin. And then on the other side, there's that, we could call it maybe the positive side of conversion, the embracing of God and his grace, faith. So this is where I put that little chart on the bottom to try to maybe tease these two things out. So on the left-hand side of the chart, you have the heart. Basically, I'm just describing that as this is who you are. The Bible, when it uses the term heart, is, is describing the real you, the real Mallory, the real Troy, the real Wanda, as scary as that real Wanda is for all of us. It's the real Wanda. You should be scared. 
So there's the the heart, and underneath that, the real you could be divided up, I guess theoretically speaking, into the immaterial and material, but for sake of illustration here, there's the mind. Facts, you know stuff. Your emotions, you feel. So there's an, a, I agree with something, and then a will, a decision-making component or capability of who you are. So you have on the left-hand side, the heart, Right next to the heart, right repentance, and then the next blank, right faith at the very top. So your mind. You have a knowledge of, if you're you're in the column of repentance, you have a knowledge of what? Elementary thing. If you are abandoning self and... So there's a, a, a general, and this is very simple, but you have a knowledge of sin. But when you get to the next, so, and, and that's on the factual level, right? You know, okay, this is what a sin is. You use your mind to know a fact. But then you move in, the, in, in this process to the emotions where you agree that I'm abandoning myself and my sin, and it becomes intensely personal. So now you're you're making it personal by saying, I agree that I am a sinner. And then you move to the last. In true repentance, you make a decision to abandon or turn away from your sin. And that's sort of the process. And it's and, and the reason I put it this way is because simply knowing what sin is isn't true repentance. And even knowing what sin is and realizing that you're a sinner isn't true repentance. True repentance doesn't come until you know what sin is, you know that you're a sinner, and that you have make a commitment to turn away from sin. I go to the column of grace, or, or faith, and I just gave you the answer. <laughs> Your mind, there's an, and I'm, this is a very generic statement because I can't fill in the blank with everything you would want to know, but you know the facts of grace, of the gospel, of all that is the good news, which we'll discuss next week, the core essential truths of the gospel. That's the fact, but that doesn't make you a believer. And then there's the emotions. I agree that I need God's grace. Or you could even put that God has extended his grace to me. That becomes, there's a personal dimension there. But still, even even at that point in time, you're still not a believer. You don't have true faith. Saving faith only comes when you make a decision Your will makes a decision to wholeheartedly trust God's grace. To wholeheartedly trust God's grace. So Psalm 51. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I might not even read any of it. But I'll I'll read some of it. But this is David after his sin with Bathsheba. And just listen to some of the things that he says and and catch the feel of how truly desirous he is of repent and how truly repentant he is. Because he not only knows what sin is and realizes that he's the sinner, but there's there's a willingness and a decision to turn from that sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you have proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And he goes on and he continues to talk about his sin and he's personalizing his sin and he knows that it's a sin against God. Right? So he, he's got 
the facts. He's made it personal. But then look at verse 7. He starts talking about, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. He's now talking a little bit more about that change, that will, that desire to abandon and turn from his old sin. Then he says, verse 10, God, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What is he asking? What is he saying there? He's moved beyond just the facts and the personalization to he wants to be clean. He wants to do away with this sin in his life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you all know that, is an example of faith. Trust in the Lord with half of your heart. No, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Everything that you are, your whole person, trust in the Lord with everything that you are. What's the alternative to trusting in the Lord with everything you are? The next the next phrase in the verse says it. And lean not on your own understanding. So there's two ways of living, right? I, I haven't found a middle ground other than the believer who knows to trust and struggles, but ultimately they're coming around to trust in God. But there's trust in God or lean on your own understanding. But true faith is a wholehearted trust in God and His grace. So if I could give you a little bit more full definition for repentance and faith, then we can move on. So here's my little bit more full definition of repentance. Repentance is genuine confession of and commitment to abandon my sin. Genuine confession of and commitment to abandon my sin. Repentance is a genuine confession of and commitment to abandon my sin. We get out of here at 8.15, right? I know not to believe anything that you say. (laughs) And then saving faith is unreserved trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on my behalf as revealed by God in his work. Saving faith, that's a long one. Unreserved trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Unreserved trust in the person of Jesus Christ. In his work on my behalf. As revealed by God in his word. Saving faith is unreserved trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on my behalf as revealed by God in his word. So my question to you is, what makes faith legit and what makes faith illegitimate? So if I walk up to you and I say, I've got faith, you know, I believe. What makes your faith legitimate or good or grounded or not? It's what your faith is in. What? It's what your faith is in. Okay. So your faith has an object. What is tr- what's the object of true saving faith per my definition? It's unreserved trust in the person of Jesus Christ. That's really, really important to know that your faith is only as good as its object. That is the thing that you are trusting. Faith is only as good as its object. And we've all memorized John 3.16 and have seen it at football games behind the field goal. 
But let me read it, and I want to emphasize three words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, the object in Christianity, the object of our faith, is not just some mystical, experiential, theoretical something out there. It is belief in Him. The object of true saving faith is the person of Jesus Christ. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Think about that for just a moment. It is the person. Think about every individual in your life. You cannot legitimately place 100% confidence in them because they will fail you at some point in time. No matter how much they love you, and in fact, oddly enough, the people that seemingly love you the most fail you the most. Maybe it's just because there's more opportunity, but they provide the biggest disappointments. Jesus is a person. And he is dependable. He's trustworthy. He is the God-man. He is holy and he is pure. He is your sacrifice. He is the Son of God. He is all that he has been promised to be. And he is the object of your faith. Because he is who he is, anything that he does has credibility and trustworthiness. So that's why it's important when I say saving faith is unreserved trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his work that he's accomplished on your behalf. Because his work is nothing if he's not who he is, right? Because if I go and I die on a cross for John, I mean, look out, dude. (laughs) You're in the same boat as you were before. It might have been a really nice gesture because I love you, but it's not going to get you anywhere other than wherever you're at. But because Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, He is completely and 100% trustworthy. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. Therefore, your trust and faith in Him is legit. Because the object is legit. Next question. So, assuming that you have been converted that you have repented of your sins and you have believed, you have faith. Do you think it's possible to move on from these elementary components of repentance and faith as you progress in your Christian life? Now that you've been converted, you've repented and believed, do you think that it's possible or advisable, maybe I could put it that way. That's more along the lines of what I'm getting at. Do you think it's possible or advisable to move on from these elementary sorts of principles of the Christian life? What do you think? Do you think you need to keep on repenting? Can you move? Can you basically say, "Okay, I've repented and believed. I'm good. I'm saved." No. So then I just I go and I live my life, and I I mean, yeah, I'm a good guy, and I go to church, and I do my good things, but like. Okay. So it's not a stagnant experience. Okay. I guess I say repentance, I'm saying confession. Um, Confession, how did I define it? It's a confession and a commitment to abandon my sin. I only ask because I've heard of people who say you only need to ask for forgiveness 
And there is a te- I mean, there is truth. I mean, from a positional standpoint, which this is getting like three weeks ahead, positionally, right? We're all forgiven. Like I'm, I'm 100% completely pure in God's eyes because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Right? So there's nothing I can do to change my status as His Son. But my sin affects my fellowship, so it doesn't affect my relationship. Right? My relationship is secure, and there's nothing that can be done about that. But my, the enjoyment of my fellowship, the enjoyment of that relationship, which we would call fellowship, can be affected by my sin. Therefore, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, right? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's an ongoing sort of, like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, is it 5 or 6? Is it 6? I think it's, I don't know, it's 5 or 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive us this day, right? So yeah, I think that absolutely, and I think we're all kind of agreeing, that you can't, even though conversion is the moment in time where you initially repent and you initially believe, those that's just the initial step. That's the beginning of re, a life of repentance. So our lives as believers ought to be characterized by repentance and faith. In fact, I think Hebrews... In a negative light, because it has a bunch of warning passages in Hebrews you've probably heard of before. If you look through the warning passages of Hebrews, you would you would get the sense that a truly repentant person and a truly believing person, that repentance and belief are marks of a persevering believer. They're marks of a genuine Christian. Okay, so let me ask you this. Do you think it's possible to be genuinely converted if you have faith but not repentance? So you hear, so I'm a, I'm televan, uh, that's, yeah, I'm tipping my hand. So I'm televangelist, right? And, I, and I'm waxing eloquent and I talk about how great God is and he's this God full of love and grace, which he is. I haven't told you anything about the bad stuff, right? And I say, just believe. All you got to do is, once you believe, you're good. We can take care of the, you know, like you, if, if you want to, to get really serious, down the road, you can make a commitment to make Jesus, you know, like the king and lord of your life. And, you know, you just, you commit then. So what do you think? No. <clears throat> Why not? Why not? Hopefully you repent. But, but I mean, but, but I mean, didn't Jesus just say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here." I'm here. I'm, I'm the king. I'm here. Repent. That's all he said. He didn't say believe. He just said repent. Well, it also says different things that you should do: how you have fruits of the spirit, your attitude, what you do. There's more instruction. Yeah, but I mean, Jesus said when he invited people to join his kingdom. He said, repent. Yeah, but later on, tell us more. <laughs> yeah, he also <laughs> gave you die right after. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, but seriously, but I mean, that, honestly, guys, this is an objection that people might have to you. Oh, yeah, some do, yeah. And, and there's been a pretty wacky segment of evangelicalism that would say, all you, it's sometimes called easy believism. All you have to do is you just pray a prayer. You can live your life however you want, and your belief gets you through. Yeah, I, I, I believe. But there's never repentance, and in fact they would argue that repentance is a condition of salvation, making it a works-based salvation. So how do you, how, how do we combat that sort of, of heresy? Because they, they, they could look add a text like what I've suggested Matthew 4 and say, okay, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Yeah, and then they could say, well, what about Acts 16.31? It doesn't say repent and believe, it just says believe. Believe. So how, how, do, you, how do you deal with that? Dad? John, uh, Romans 10.10 says, for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation so there's belief there 
Okay. I mean, you have to confess and believe in your heart. It's a, it's a twofold process. Right. Like you say, it sets apart. There's confession. Which yeah. You can't have one without the other. I'll give you one text that... To be that, saved. That, like my dad just said, com, uh, combines the two. Mark one fifteen. It's a very similar context to the other passages that I've alluded to with Jesus. And he says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So there it ties the two together. You can't really separate them. So let me let me answer my own question. Absolutely not. That is just a big pile of rubbish to be nice. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. One commentator put it like this. When we turn to, tr- uh, to Christ for salvation from our sins, we are simultaneously turning away from the sins that we are asking slash trusting Christ to save us from. Let me read that again. When we turn to Christ for salvation... We are simultaneously turning away from the sins that we are asking or trusting Christ to save us from. So if repentance is a change of heart, abandoning myself and my sin, there's an assumption there, right? You can't abandon something without embracing something else, right? It's like... uh, Colossians, Romans, Romans 6, Colossians, I don't know what, maybe 3, and then Ephesians 4. All of those passages talk about put on, renew your mind, put off. Right? When you put off something, you can't just put off something and not put something else back on. That would be horrible on so many levels. Right? So repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Last question. And I'm actually going to finish on time. Sweet. Do you think you have to know the exact date and time of your conversion in order for you to be genuinely converted? I say no. <laughs> How many say no? How many say yes? How many say, I'm not sure or I don't want to answer? Teresa. <laughs> Teresa didn't raise her hand. I think this is a, I don't, I don't know if I'd say tricky one. Um, I think this question flows out of people who, um, it flows out of, I've heard one of the, resp- the ways people like to try to assure another person of their salvation is, well, you know, you prayed that prayer, like, on this day. And is that important? Like, is a turning point important? Like, yeah. I mean, everyone has one. But does that, does it absolutely mean you have to know when that happened? I could, like, for instance, I believe it's, I believe this is an accurate testimony that I've heard from my father-in-law. My father-in-law is a believer, a really, really good one, from my day, understanding and I, as far as I understand from his testimony, he doesn't have a like a tried and true day when he recalls having this massive turning in his life. There's another friend of mine. Her name's Kristen. Um, it's the same way. She grew up Catholic, and she sat under the preaching of God's word for a long time. When she got out of the Catholic Church, and just over a long period of time, she absorbed all this stuff, and she realized like. Oh yeah, like I actually believe that. That other stuff is bogus. And so I don't I'm not as concerned with give me a date and time. Are you presently living a life that is characterized by repentance and faith? Do you believe right now? Because that's the key. So I guess to apply all of this stuff. So you don't think there's a time that you actually need to say I gotta be honest. I gotta be honest, buddy. I don't. I have no idea. I I remember when I was like five or six or something like that. I 
sat down with my mom and dad in my bedroom next to my Huddles uh, comforter. After, I think it was a Sunday night after Dr. Rice preached, you know, and, but is that? But, yeah. Right. I mean, well, yeah, and I, would, I think that people like my father-in-law and people like my friend Kristen would know that they have repented and believed, but they, I don't think that they can look back at a point in time and say, yep, this is the turning point. I mean, honestly, like, yeah, when I was six years old, maybe that was the day. Probably. But... But, but I don't. I don't know. I doubted my salvation with incredible intensity when I was in college. I bet I prayed 150 times my freshman year alone to, for God to save me. So I don't know. Was it one of those 150 times? I'm not sure. You know. I, but I know right now that I can stand before you and say, as as with a clear conscience, I believe I, re, I I'm living a life of repentance and faith. I think it's something easier for someone I think who's come to Christ later in life. I was 21, and I can see the change that happened then quickly, some of the things, but then since then it's been a process of maturity and stuff like that. When you're five or six years old, yeah, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. I think maybe they could make a decision then, but then as you come to maturity, and like really get serious or dedicate. Yeah. So let me ask you just these quick questions just to think about. Um, number one, and I'm not trying to get anyone to doubt their salvation tonight, okay? But honestly, it's very possible that there's people in here that are not believers. So my question to you is, have you truly been converted? Have you come to the place in your life where you you have had a change of heart where you have abandoned yourself in your sin and you have embraced God in his grace then believer and I I I turn the gun at, my, at myself here are you living a life that is continually demonstrating repentance and faith? Are you living a life of change? Because that's what conversion is, right? It's a big change, a huge change, a supernatural work of God in your life. So is your life reflecting that change? Okay. You have homework. So, in your book, you have lesson two that you're going to need to do. There's a lot of stuff to do. In addition to that, I'd like to give you uh, one thing to do. Maybe a couple. Okay. So, what I'd really like you to do is if you could write out your personal testimony. Don't make it long. Um, and then throughout the semester, we'll just maybe, you don't, you don't, there's no pressure to share it necessarily. Um, but what I'd like to do is maybe just one a class or as we go, um, I'd like to have one of you, maybe each class, depending on, or maybe two, read through your personal testimony. So don't make it like super long, maybe make it a couple minutes, three, four, five minutes tops. Um, I don't know. No more than five minutes, so keep it simple. Um, but I, I would like—I think it's a good exercise for you as well and for me to write out a personal testimony and, and be able to explain that to somebody else. Then lastly, I want to give you two resources. I know now I've gone over, but it's your fault because you asked questions, John. So I want to give you two resources in prep for Lesson 2. Next week, the title of it is What Must I Do to Be Saved? And what we're going to talk about in class is what are the core components of the gospel. What makes up the gospel? And here are two resources I would uh, recommend that you go try to find. One is called, What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? By a guy named Brian Chappell. His last name is C-H-A-P-E-L-L. It is a very small, I think, 28-page booklet published by the Gospel Coalition. So it's called, What is the Gospel? By Brian Chappell. Chapel with two L's. 
And then the second is called a gospel primer for Christians. A gospel primer, like paint primer, a gospel primer for Christians, and it's written by a guy named Milton Vincent. Milton Vincent. I would highly recommend, even if you don't get those and read them by next week, which you don't, I'm not expecting you to, but get the Milton Vincent one and have it. It is a phenomenal book and it's really short with big letters. All right. Thank you.